Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. But let's pray first. We'll uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're ready to study the Word and, if necessary, to confess your sins before God and silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we can be here this evening. We're thankful that you've given us your word, that you have declared the end from the beginning in history. And we know the beginning in Genesis, that you created the heavens and the earth, and in six days you created all the things that are in the heavens and the earth and the seas. And you created the human race. You gave us volition, and Adam and Eve disobeyed you. Adam's was the significant sin as he disobeyed you and the uh, human race was plunged into sin, and then you sent your your son, actually the eternal second person of the Trinity, to take on humanity and to die on the cross for our sins, that sin would be paid for so that we could then be restored to a relationship with you by putting our faith and trust in Christ's substitutionary work on the cross. Father, you have a destiny in history. You're working out various purposes, as we've been studying in Revelation, and these culminate at the end in a period, uh, a glorious period, a golden age, referred to as the Messianic Kingdom or the Millennium, which we'll study tonight. So, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us as we study the passages to see these things and to understand your plan in a better and greater way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been working our way through Revelation, and now we are, we have come to Revelation chapter 20. For, since we began in Revelation chapter 4, which was probably about three or four years ago, we have spent all of our time studying the period known as the Tribulation or Daniel's 70th week or the time of, of, uh, uh, time of Jacob's wrath. This is the this is over with now. It concludes with the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we covered in Revelation chapter 19, and then Revelation 20 opens with the uh, final events that took place in that seven day, 75 day interval we looked at last time between the second coming of Christ and the beginning of what is referred to as the messianic kingdom, or sometimes the millennial kingdom. Now, the term millennium is taken from the Latin word milli, which means a thousand. Theologically, it's used to refer to the thousand-year reign of Christ based on the text of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, where you should highlight, circle, color, whatever, the word thousand. Uh, 
Five times in these six verses we have the phrase 1,000 years. So it's very clear from the repetition of the term that we're talking about a literal period of 1,000 years. We'll talk about that a little more in just a minute. Now, in terms of the terminology, we have these two words that have been used in church history. The first is milli, which I already discussed, which is the Latin word for thousand. And the other word is kilioi, kilioi, which is the Greek word for 1,000. In the early church, those who held to a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth, a future 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth, were called Kiliasts. And then later, they became known as Millennialists. They didn't stick pre on there, but that's what they meant by it. They were Millennialists. And then somebody came along somewhere who was all confused linguistically, and they recognized that there were a certain segment of people who didn't really believe in a literal 1,000-year reign. So since they did not believe in a thousand-year reign, they were called amillennialists. But remember, milli is a Latin word, and a is a Greek prefix, so they were just mixing the languages up, and they were really confused. But So that's why we're stuck with this word amillennialism, and we'll talk about the terminology in just a minute. But first, I want to look at the first three verses, which is where we are first introduced to this thousand-year period of time. Revelation 20, verse 1 says, Then I, and of course that refers to the Apostle John, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, or the key to the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. Now, we don't know where the the bottomless pit is located. It's just a place that has... uh, uh, is a place of darkness, a place where there's no escape. It is a place where we saw that uh, uh, various demons were confined until they were released during the uh, fifth uh, trumpet judgment. And, um, and so this is where Satan or Lucifer will be chained for a thousand years. That means that when we look at the future kingdom, one source... Of, of evil is removed from having any influence on the human race. Remember, there are three sources for evil in human history. The first is Lucifer or Satan. Lucifer was an angel that God created in eternity past. He was the highest of all the angels. He was, but he was a creature. He was created by God as a cherub. Ezekiel chapter 28. Uh, verse 14 and following, describe him as the cherub who covers. And so he was a particular order of cherubs. And a cherub wasn't a little baby with wings. A cherub was an extremely fierce-looking angel that had four faces, the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. And that they were uh, enormous and that they had uh, four wings and that they were, they guarded the throne of God. And Satan was the chief of the cherubs, and he had a particular role to cover uh, with his wings the throne of God. He would be over the throne of God and, and cover it, according to Ezekiel chapter 28. But then he became consumed with his own importance 
arrogance seeped into his soul, and he decided he wanted to be like God. He wanted all of the praise and honor and glory that was coming to God, and so he decided that he would try to uh, uh, get all of the angels to uh, worship him. And he created a conspiracy and a rebellion among the angels, and he influenced a third of them. Now, we don't know the exact number of angels. There are millions and millions of angels. Uh, scripture says that they are uh, without, almost without number. They're more than we can think of. A huge number of angels, myriads upon myriads of angels. And so he leads a third of them in rebellion against God. This creates a warfare in heaven, and they are defeated, brought to trial. And it is at that point that uh, Satan accuses God of being unfair and just not giving him the opportunity to really show what he could do and that how unfair of God to send his creatures to the lake of fire for eternity. I mean, it's, that's, that's a long time. And it's an extremely painful punishment to be in everlasting fire forever and ever and ever. And the creaturely argument is that's just too horrible for uh, anyone to go through and how unloving of God to punish anyone. And as I've pointed out before, what God demonstrates in history by the creation of a perfect Adam and Eve, placing them in the garden, giving them the simple test of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that as long as they did not eat the fruit, they would be alive, they would be eating from the fruit of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. But if they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, instantly they would die spiritually, which means that they... Uh, lost their ability to understand God, to have rapport with God. Their spiritual life was gone. All of this was, was destroyed. And that at that point, there would have to be a redemption solution. And yet the sin that plunged everything into the mess that it's in created is the ultimate source for all the famines, all the earthquakes, all the hurricanes, all the volcanoes that keep everybody trapped in an airport. I mean, that's Satan's got to spend at least a million years for every person he's had trapped in an airport for the last few days. And if you've ever traveled much and been tra ever trapped in an airport, you know how horrible that is. I think that's 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 worth a thousand years for each person just just for that alone. But you have these earthquakes, uh, volcanoes, all of these things that happen, not to mention the wars and the disease and all of the horrible things in history. All of that is the result of one guy eating the wrong piece of fruit. And what God was demonstrating is that whenever the creature acts independently of the creator, no matter how small and innocuous the act may be, and we think that, you know, I can just get away with this and it really doesn't have much of an impact. What God was showing that even an act as innocuous as just eating the wrong piece of fruit has developed all of these consequences, all these horrible consequences and suffering in the lives of so many creatures. And that is why an everlasting punishment in the lake of fire is not a harsh punishment because it was that temptation from Satan to Eve that is what generated uh, that whole thing and, and, of course, his original sin. 
So he is not going to be sent to the lake of fire initially at the end of the tribulation period, but he is going to be chained up so that this first enemy of the human race is going to be taken out of the equation for 1,000 years. And during that 1,000 years, the environment of the earth is going to be uh, rolled back. It's going to be, it's going to recover to a point very similar to that in the period before the Noahic flood. Uh, once again, the animals will all be uh, herbivores. They will not be eating one another, and they won't be eating us. Uh, children will be able to put their hands into a cobra's den. Uh, lions and lambs and wolves will all sleep together as happy as they can be without worrying about ending up in uh, one another's stomach or something of that nature. So it's going to be a, a somewhat perfect environment. It'll still be this earth, so there will still be scars from the wars and sin and these things, but, but much of it is going to have to be restored by God before it's habitable again because so much is destroyed during the tribulation period. But Satan is removed. So one source is out. The second enemy of man is his own sin nature. But that's not removed. So those who survive the tribulation period, the Gentiles and the Jews that survive, that will marry, that will have children, repopulate the earth, they're going to learn that environment isn't an issue. The environment's restored back to something pretty close to what it was like uh, at the time of Eden. Satan is not going to be there to tempt anyone. And all of any sin or evil that occurs in the millennial kingdom, any criminality, is all going to come just from that sin nature. So in the millennial kingdom, there will be a demonstration that the basic problem with man is man, is his sin nature, his volition. He chooses to go against God. He can't blame Satan. He can't blame the environment. He can't blame a lack of education. can't blame anything else. And he can't blame the government because it will be perfect government. And Jesus Christ uh, the true Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will be on the throne ruling over the earth. And so there will be perfect government, perfect justice, and so you, there won't be any social problems, there won't be any injustice on the earth, but there will be millions that are born during this period that by the end of the period when Satan is released, they will join him in the last final rebellion against God and... Uh, in all of human history. And so that's the second. Now, the third enemy that we have is what we refer to as the world system or the cosmic system, which is the thought system of Satan. And that thought system is the rationale that justifies the sin nature. So that's still going to be present in the millennial kingdom because with all these little sinners that are going to grow up, they're going to, it's not going to take them long to create systems of thought to justify their sin. And so there will be a millennial cosmic system because, but it won't be as bad as now because the other systems such as government and education and yes, even healthcare will all be perfect. It's just going to be individuals who have fallen natures. So Satan is going to be removed, and this is described in Revelation 20, verse 1. God sends an angel to uh, incarcerate him in the abyss. And in verse 2 we read that he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? A thousand years. 
He really means 5,000 years, doesn't he? Or five days, or and he means 1,000 years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the 1,000 years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And then in verse 4, John goes on to say, And then I saw thrones. So he shifts his, his vision to something different from the incarceration of Satan. He says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I'll talk more about the passage uh, in a little bit, but what I want to emphasize here is, once again, it's a thousand years. And then we get to verse 5, and we read, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Five times it says a thousand years. Now, every time that we run into into numbers in the book of Revelation, they're always understood literally. We have the uh, chronological marker of the 1,260 days, or 40, also called 42 months, or three and a half years. Back in Revelation chapter 7, we were introduced to the 144,000 uh, Jews that are sealed, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. All of those numbers have to be taken literally. You can't make them symbolic. There are no numbers in the book of Revelation that are understood symbolically. If they are, then you just end up making it up as you go along, which unfortunately is what a lot of people have done down through the years because they have rejected a normal, plain understanding of, of language. So the basis uh, for the belief in the length of the millennial kingdom comes out of these six verses. This is the only place in all the Bible that tells us how long the millennial kingdom is going to last. And the millennial kingdom, this stage of it, is really phase one of the eternal state. So sometimes when we get into certain passages in the Old Testament and they talk about forever and ever and ever, uh, it, it includes both stage one or phase one, which is the millennial kingdom, and then there's the creation of the new heavens and the new earth on into on into eternity. So this gives us that, that opening part that this is a literal thousand years. Now, in the early part of the church, the church age, these numbers were understood literally. And you look at various, uh, various theologians in the early uh, part of the, the second century, the 100s period, especially Irenaeus, who's written, who had written quite a bit on prophecy. They understood and they interpreted these passages in a literal fashion. So a thousand years meant a thousand years. But by the end of the second century, into the third century, with the influence of a man named Origen, you had a, a shift occur, and they didn't interpret the Bible in a literal fashion, and they introduced allegorical or spiritualizing, and so the kingdom didn't become a literal earthly kingdom uh, but it became more of a spiritualized or allegorical kingdom. Now, one of the reasons that I'm 
One thing I want you to think about tonight as we go through this and in the coming um, coming lessons is something, uh, a little bit of an opportunity for you to think through something that I've been cha- sort of challenged to think through in the last few weeks, is put yourself in a position where you have the opportunity to witness to an unsaved Jew. Now, that has, that's an interesting proposition in and of itself. It's, it's very different depending on their background, where they're coming from. Many, uh, many Jews in the United States are secular today. They have, in fact, I have two or three friends that are just complete atheists as far as God is concerned. And one of the mistakes that I've discovered and learned about recently that most Christians make, especially those who come out of our background that are uh, that believe in the Bible, that have a, believe in the uh, literal interpretation of the Scriptures, believe that the Jews are the chosen people of God, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and believe that the Jews are still God's people, God still has a plan for the Jews and for Israel, and that there is a future for Israel in the plan of God, that we have a tendency to put on our rose-colored glasses and romanticize Jews and think that they have an appreciation for their position in the Old Testament like we do, and they don't. They don't know the Old Testament. They're a lot like Roman Catholics. They're taught a lot about uh, what the rabbis taught and certain traditional positions and beliefs within Judaism, but they're not taught the Old Testament. It's just like when I was uh, working on my master's degree in philosophy at the University of St. Thomas, and there was a young lady who was in the class who was actually a nun, but they were dressing in civilian clothes. They were going incognito. And um, one day we were having a discussion, and uh, I was quoting some scripture, and she looked at me and she said, Robbie, you have to understand, we're Catholics. We don't know the Bible. We don't read the Bible. And the same thing is true for, for most Jews. They don't know the Old Testament. You can, you can mention books of the Old Testament. They might know some of them, but they really don't know the Old, Old Testament at all. In fact, you'll probably run into, um, you know, some Christians who go to church once in a while who probably know more about the Old Testament than they do. So you have to think of it in a, in a little different way. In fact, I was reading a quote from a guy named David Frum who was in the Bush uh, White House, and he was talking about a speech that George Bush made in early 2001 to a Jewish audience, and he quoted a psalm and he, which referred to the Lord God, and he, and he said that even though you know, he was a Christian and they were Jewish, we all worshipped the same Lord God. And, and Fromm said that, that, that the reaction just really baffled Bush, direct quote. And it would baffle you, and it would have baffled me too, because we tend to look at Jews with this kind of rose-colored, romanticized view. And Frum goes on to say, American Christians have to realize that the Jewish community is so deeply and profoundly secularized that when anybody other than a Jew starts talking about God, they're just really uncomfortable. And then when they remind them that the Lord God that they're talking about is their Lord God too, they really get uncomfortable. And that was very enlightening for me because it's important to help you understand where people might be coming from when you're witnessing to them. And sometimes you can overpower them when you don't know that you are just because you say things that are just setting off all kinds of alarms 
and the other person's head, and all they want to do is get away from you as fast as they possibly can. And I had that that happened to me one time. I was in the office of a friend of mine, one of the men who helped start the church, and a one of his clients, another man who has come to be a close friend of mine now, uh, Jewish businessman, came into his office, and I was introduced to him. And just before he came in there, uh, this mutual friend said, you know, he's, he's not saved. You might want to give him the gospel. And so he came in, and we were introduced, and he asked me, he said, well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor. Oh, really? Interesting. What kind of church? And I said, a Bible church. He said, what's a Bible church? I said, well, we teach the Bible. We believe the Old Testament's the Word of God, and it predicted a Messiah, and the New Testament's the Word of God. And Jesus is the promised Messiah who died on the cross for our sins. And he looked at his watch and he said, I need to go. <laughs> and I've never seen anybody flee a gospel presentation as fast as he did. And he's still not saved, and I had lunch with him yesterday. Um, and I've known him for 10 years, and it's just been really interesting how over that 10-year period, you know, Pam and I would come back from Connecticut uh, for a visit, and we'd go out to eat, and there he was. And we'd run into him here and there and different places, and, you know, we'd discover other friends that also knew him. And he, he can't get away from me. So it's 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 interesting, but... You, you, sometimes we think that, okay, I've got this one shot. I need to shoot every barrel I've got with everything with 45 caliber, 12 gauge and hit, hit them over the head. And that's not going to work. So you, I want you to think about this because this is a typical response you'll get from, uh, from some, some Jews. Uh, they'll, they'll think, okay, why should I believe that Jesus is the Messiah? That's one question. I've been asked that question. Well, not just why should I believe that. They'll say, why do you believe that? Another question is, okay, if you, as a Christian, what do you think is going to happen? And why do you think, I hear about these Christians who think that, that Jesus is going to come back, and before Jesus comes back, all the Jews need to be back in the land. And when Jesus comes back, then we're going to have the Battle of Armageddon, and all these Jews are going to be killed. Now, they, they hear various forms of that. That's kind of an extreme form. But they'll hear, hear other forms of that, such that uh, sort of like, well, so, so what you believe is that we're getting towards the end times, and it's going to be really bad for the Jews. See, they always, they, they ne- you can say Gentiles till you're blue in the face, but what they're hearing is, Armageddon's in Israel, so it's going to be really bad for us. It's funny how we filter things like that. So what do you mean that, so is this right, that, that you know, God's just going to just punish the Jews? That doesn't seem very fair. So how do you work around that? Think about that. How are you going to present the gospel to a person like that without absolutely putting your foot in your mouth and saying the wrong thing and coming across as if, oh, you're just another Christian anti-Semite. So you have to think about it a little bit. And what's important, and I hit on this this last week in answering a question that was sent to me via email, that the starting point would be to look at the Old Testament in terms of what did God promise in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom. Now, that's the starting point, because 
you know, arguably a Jew ought to agree that, well, this is the Old Testament, this is the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible does promise certain things about uh, a coming kingdom and what the Messiah is going to do. And that when the Messiah comes, he's going to establish this kingdom and this rule of righteousness and justice on the earth. Now, do you know where to go in the Old Testament to find passages to support that? Well, that's what we're going to cover, some of those passages. Because the the same passages that we'll talk about the Messiah coming to establish this kingdom, this golden age in Israel's future, a rule of perfect justice, it's preceded by something that's... It's pretty horrible. And that also comes from Old Testament passages. We're not talking about the New Testament. We're not talking about just ignore Revelation. It just ties everything up in a bow for you. Go back to all of the things that Revelation uses to tie the bow. Go to Zechariah. Go to Joel. Go to uh, Daniel. Go to Jeremiah. Go to Isaiah. Go to those prophecies and promises and build a case from the Old Testament. That, and that's, that's what I did, uh, or started to do in the answer, is that the Jewish Old Testament scriptures promise that there's going to be a coming world ruler, a eternal rule ruler, descendant of David, who's going to establish a, king, a Jewish kingdom on the earth in the future, uh, characterized by a rule of justice and righteousness. And that that rule is going to be preceded by a time when Gentile nations are going to invade Israel, and Israel will call upon God to come and deliver them. That you get out of the Old Testament. And God will send the Messiah who will then deliver them. It's just that Christians think the Messiah is Jesus. And so that's why they think Jesus is the one that the Jews will turn to. Now, if, they, if it was another group and they thought the Messiah was somebody else, then that's who they would plug into the name of Messiah. Huh. Well, that's going to give them a lot to think about because you're setting up the whole prophetic scenario, not from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament and what Jewish the Jewish scriptures say, and from what I've been told, I don't have enough experience in Jewish evangelism, but I have enough experience in just evangelism with most people, is, is they don't know these passages. And I've been told by people like Arnold Fruchtenbaum and some others that if you ask, ask them if they've ever read Daniel, they haven't, because the rabbis, uh, uh, from what I've been told, discourage that. Have you ever read Isaiah 53? No, never, because... Uh, that's, that has been uh, discouraged by the rabbis. It took the rabbis 10,000 years to figure out how to reinterpret Isaiah 53 so that it wouldn't appear to be talking about Jesus and an individual because every time Jews would read Isaiah 53, they would start trusting in Jesus. And then finally they decided, okay, that, that's not talking about an individual. The suffering servant is the whole nation, and we all, all the Jewish, all the Jews suffer, and so that's the answer. So I want you to think in terms of how would you answer that kind of a question, because that's real-life personal evangelism. Now, you may sit here and say, well, I don't, I don't know any Jews, or I don't have anybody like that that I have any kind of contact with. And I was telling somebody before class, I remember when I was at Dallas Seminary taking evangelism. We had a three-week evangelism course at the end of soteriology at the end of your third semester. 
And one of the requirements in the evangelism course, and you learned this at the beginning of the semester, was that you had to witness to three unbelievers. If you found out they were a believer, it didn't count. So you had to find three unbelievers that were bona fide, serious, honest unbelievers and give them the gospel. You didn't have to get them saved, but you had to give a gospel presentation. Now, that was really difficult in the in the very artificial world of being a seminary student where everybody you know is a Christian. I mean, I was living in an apartment complex, and half the people living in the apartment complex went to Dallas Seminary, and the other half went to Dallas Bible College. So you you just never saw anybody or had any kind of connection, at least I didn't, and most people don't. Think in your own life. I bet many of you... As you're hearing this, you think about it, and you realize that you, you may live in a fairly cloistered kind of, of environment. Now, some of you, if you work in a, uh, an office or you work in a business someplace, and you might have a number of people you work with that, are, that you know of that are not believers. But hey, when you're going to seminary, everybody you live, breathe, eat Christianity. You don't know of anything that's not Christian, so that was difficult. And then other times in my life, I've looked around and realized that I really had a lot of unbelievers in my life. And I had opportunities to witness. So we all go through different uh, times in our, in our Christian life. Sometimes we have people we can witness to. Sometimes we don't. So even if you're sitting there saying, well, you know, I don't know any, anybody who's Jewish, and I've never had an opportunity to witness to anybody Jewish, well, usually my experience is that when I've ever learned any point of doctrine, that the Lord gives me an opportunity to apply it sometime pretty soon. So guess what's going to show up in your life pretty soon? So now's your opportunity to learn. So how would you go about this? Well, that's why we have to understand some of these distinctions uh, when we talk about millennialism. And just as a little background, just for vocabulary, there are three different ways in which uh, Christians have tried to interpret the end times and the, the return of Christ in relationship to his kingdom. And the first is called post-millennialism. And in post-millennialism, Jesus returns after the millennial kingdom. That's what the prefix post means, is after. So in post-millennialism, first you get the kingdom, then you have Jesus. Okay? That's the order. So the church, in the church age, that the influence of Christianity is going to be progressively uh, more and more, have progressively more and more of an impact until eventually uh, all of the institutions around the world have become Christianized. Now, there's actually two forms of postmillennialism. There's the liberal utopic form that dominated in the late 19th century that has nothing to do with uh, the gospel or literal belief in Scripture. And then there's the conservative uh, view where they do believe in Christ. They believe in the infallibility of Scripture. They just interpret prophetic passages in a in an allegorical way. And so according to the chart here, you see in the church age, it gets progressively greener because of the spread of the gospel. And as that happens, the kingdom gradually comes in, and there's a period of time when it's clear that we're in the kingdom. Now, different writers, some say it all of a sudden it appears and it's clear you're in the kingdom. Others will say it just gradually comes in, and one day you wake up and you scratch your head and say, Oh, golly, we might, we've been in the kingdom and we've been here for a while. And then Jesus comes back. 
Okay, so the, and, and there's judgment, and then you go into eternity. That's the post-millennial view. Now, Lorraine Bettner, who is a Reformed theologian and post-millennialist, has a book called The Millennium, in which he says that post-millennialism is the view of last things which holds that the kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of individuals, that the world is eventually to be Christianized and that the return of Christ is to occur at the close of a long period of righteousness and peace commonly called the millennium. But it's not really a literal thousand years. It's just the kingdom. Uh, he says the second coming of Christ will be followed immediately by the general resurrection, the general judgment, and the introduction of heaven and hell in their fullness. Now, a lot of early post-millennialists in the 17th, 16th and 17th centuries believed that before Jesus would return at the end of the millennium, the Jews would be regathered to the land. That was the thinking in the 1600s, 1700s with post-millennialists in England, and so they believed in helping the Jews get back to the land. So that not only post, but not only premillennialists, but also postmillennialists at that time wanted to help Jews get back to the land. Then we have premillennialism. Post is after, pre is before. This view it sees Jesus returning before the beginning of the kingdom. This is the view that we hold, that Jesus will return at the end of the tribulation. He will cleanse the earth and establish the kingdom, which will last for a literal 1,000-year period. And so this is what the chart reveals, that the kingdom was offered to the Jews at the first coming, they rejected him as king, rejected the offer of the kingdom, and the kingdom is then postponed until Jesus the king comes, that he's not on the throne right now, that he is sitting on the throne of God right now, and he doesn't receive his throne until he returns. Now that is premillennialism. Now, that's why it's so important to understand this whole doctrine of the kingdom is because if, if you're in one of the other views, then we're in some kind of kingdom today. And in strict premillennialism, although there have been those who have fudged on this in recent years, in strict premillennialism, there's no kingdom now. The kingdom is future. Now, amillennialism is the third view, and this is the view there's no literal earthly kingdom, that ah at the beginning, the A is a negative prefix, no millennium, no literal millennium. And in this view, the, the church age is a Christians, we're, we're a spiritual kingdom. Jesus is on the spiritual throne of David in heaven. And every time somebody is becomes a Christian and they're regenerated, then that's the first resurrection. That's part of the first resurrection. You didn't know that when you got saved, you got resurrected. So the church age and the kingdom are at the same time. They overlap. They're the same thing. And then at the end of the, this present age, then Jesus will come back. That's when, all the res, that's when the second resurrection takes place, all the judgments take place, and then we go into eternity. So that's the difference between uh, post-mill, pre-mill, and amill. Now, we believe that the Old Testament teaches that, or that the Bible teaches the way the Bible interprets itself, is that it should be interpreted literally. So that when the Bible talks about Israel, it means Israel. When the Bible talks about the church, it means the church. 
when the Bible talks about Zion, it means a particular location in Israel, either the literal Mount Zion or, by extension, Jerusalem, or, by extension, the whole nation wherein the Mount Zion exists. Uh, but in, these, in amillennialism and postmillennialism, Zion means the church. Israel means the church. And they would say that Israel is the church in the Old Testament and the church is Israel in the New Testament. See, they're just making it up as they go along. It's not a, you can't take words at face value. Satan's greatest tool is to destroy language and the meaning of language. And once you destroy the literal meaning of language, you can't do business anymore. That's one of the main things that's happening in with postmodernism today is it's destroyed the meaning of language and absolutes. If you don't have absolutes, anything can mean anything however you want it to mean. And how can you enter into a contract with anybody if the terms don't mean what it appears that they mean? And that's the danger with all of these bailouts and the problems with these mortgages uh, problems and everything today is because people entered into contracts on credit cards and mortgages under certain terms uh, with certain interest rates for certain periods of time, and now the government wants to come in and change what all these things mean. And the implications of that for law and for language and for business are just dreadful. Once terms no longer mean have a fixed, solid meaning, then anything can mean anything to anybody anytime they wanted to, and everything in society, thought, and language falls apart and collapses. So it's 9 o'clock, so we need to go ahead and stop there. Next time I'll come back, and we will begin to look at this whole issue of the kingdom in terms of what was promised to Israel in the Old Testament. How would they have this idea of a kingdom. When John the Baptist came, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His disciples were sent out to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not to the Gentiles, with the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But nowhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John does anyone define the kingdom. Where is that defined? It's defined in the Old Testament. So you go to the Old Testament and you get these promises of a descendant of David who's going to come and sit on an eternal throne and establish an eternal government of righteousness and peace. Then you begin to understand what was promised to Israel. And you just plug Jesus into that role of Messiah and it, it changes everything because now we realize that what we're looking for is Jesus coming back. Okay? We'll get to that Next time, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to be uh, challenged by what it says and have our thinking challenged so that we can uh, be more effective uh, witnesses for you, more effective in our explanation of the gospel and what we believe, and that we might have a greater orientation to the future in terms of what you have provided for us and and what you have revealed in your word. Uh, Challenge us with these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.